Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Wednesday. Happy hump day. Uh, we're midway through the week. Uh, we're doing, we're off to a great start. It's going to get even better today. You guys know what Wednesday is. We're going to do some Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Pastor Anthony Walker will be here with us in studio. Virgil Walker will join us via Skype. So will Dave Shannon in our Harmony discussion. We're going to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention and how it's blowing up, how the controversy at Saddleback Church and the ordaining of female pastors is bringing things with the SBC to a head. We'll talk about that uh, in the Tennessee Harmony portion. Today's show is going to focus in on women and, and it'll all be tied together. I'm gonna, walk, I'm gonna walk you through a fire starter about the worship of women. And, and I'm gonna connect it to events in the news and, and then we're just gonna have a conversation about women and the role of women throughout today's show. Uh, Shamika Michelle is gonna join us to help us do that. Uh, she's written a column about um, something that's going on in North Carolina. They're, they're celebrating the Crown Act at schools in North Carolina in the Durham area, area where uh, Shamika's youngest daughter is a high school senior. Uh, Shamika's written a column about it. We'll talk about it and we'll talk about the female-led school board that uh, instituted the Crown Act uh, is, is some, some national legislation that the Senate filibustered, Republican Senate's senators filibustered into oblivion. Uh, it didn't make it as a national legis piece of last national legislation, but it has some states are adopted. I believe 20 states have adopted some form of, of the Crown Act, and so we'll get into that, and, and I'll unpack, I'll connect it to some things going on in sports and things going on in the rest of the culture, and we'll have a big discussion about all of that. Uh, I, I want to start by telling you guys, first, <laughs> think of my new haircut. Just got my haircut today. I always look so much better with a fresh cut. I, I don't know if I can, you know, do any better. I got just enough gray. Uh, peppering my hair, that uh, everything looks natural. A couple of weeks, I'll dye my hair again uh, and irritate some of you all, but maybe I won't. Who, who knows? But uh, anyway, if you would leave a comment about my haircut in the comments, you could help me and the show out. If uh, you love my haircut or if you dislike my haircut, I need you to hit the likes button. I think we came a little short of my goal of 5,000 likes yesterday. We need to hit that today. This haircut, this, this new jacket that I'm wearing, this is, I, I've worn one like this before, but it was a 2X. This is actually the 1X version of it that fits much better. I mean, look how good I look. I mean, if I, if, if, if I look good, you gotta hit the like button. If I look bad, you gotta hit the like button. Either way, we need 5,000 likes today, 5,000. We're in a fight with the algorithm and with YouTube and with the kind of conversations we like to have on this show. You know they're working against us. That's why I need you working for us by hitting the like button. That's gotta be part of your routine. That's gotta be when you tell your friends and family about the show, you gotta tell them to hit the likes button. You gotta tell them to go over to Apple and leave a five-star review hit five-star review, then write a little comment about how much you enjoy this show. We have to fight big tech and the things they're doing to try to limit our influence 
It's just little small things I need from fearless soldiers. This isn't requiring, this isn't about your money. This isn't about uh, something that'll take you an hour. These are just little tiny things you can do to support the fearless movement. It is a movement. We got the roll call coming. I'm very, getting very, very excited about that. I was on uh, texting with Tamara, who sings Freedom at the end of our shows, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. She's coming in from LA to sing Freedom for us. She's gonna sing a couple gospel songs for us. This thing's gonna be hot. This thing is going to be amazing on April 15th. It's gonna be really the official kickoff of our movement. All I'm asking you to do is come out here to Nashville, and while you're not here in Nashville, just hit the likes button, just hit the five-star review, just write a little review. Get in the comments and, and debate, you know, my haircut and my hair color. And, you know, just how good I look. Uh, before I do anything else, though, now I got something for the really, really super committed fearless soldiers, or those of you that really want to make an impact in the culture. Uh, preborn. You guys know I love preborn because preborn, like me and like you, we believe in the sanctity of life in the womb. We believe that it's important for the mindset of men, women, and society for us to support life in the womb. Life starts in the womb. You get in that mindset of life, the sanctity of life in the womb, it will dictate your behavior once life comes out of the womb. That's how you know, that's how you have a proper society that treats life with a great deal of value. So it starts with supporting life in the womb and good fearless soldiers like myself, like you all, like everybody that watches this show knows that we have to support organizations like Preborn. You guys have seen the founder Dan Steiner on this show. Any money you give to preborn goes towards paying for ultrasounds for expectant mothers. Mothers who are contemplating an abortion, when they see an ultrasound, when they hear a baby's heartbeat, when they see that baby growing inside their womb, 70, 80% of the time they choose life. And then preborn steps in and supports that mother through that maternity process and through the first two years of that baby's life, <clears throat> that's where our money goes. It doesn't go to pay for some, some high-priced middle manager, doesn't go to pay some high executive that's making three, four $400,000 a year. It goes directly towards paying for an ultrasound for a young woman who's considering abortion. It's just $28 for, to pay for one ultrasound. $140 pays for five ultrasounds. Here's how you can give. It's very easy and we should all be doing it. Doesn't matter whether you give $5, $10, $28, $280, a million dollars, it all counts. Pound 250, say the keyword baby. Pound 250, say the keyword baby. Or do it the way that I prefer to do it, preborn.com slash Jason preborn.com slash Jason, you get it on their website, then you're gonna have to click and say, hey, how'd you hear about preborn? You gotta say, fearless and Jason Whitlock, because I'm sorry, I, I do want the credit for this, and I do want your emails when you do this. When you, this is like your official sign up to be a fearless soldier, is when you give to preborn, when you really make a, a commitment to supporting the sanctity of life inside the womb, 
This is very important for us guys. It's important for our mindset. It's important for our culture. It's important for the young women. We don't want them carrying that burden, that guilt, from having participated in the destruction of the life growing inside their womb. We want to help them through this process. Once they're blessed with a baby, trust me, it'll be the greatest thing that ever happened to them. Preborn.com slash Jason. Okay, uh, let's uh, get into uh, the show and let's get into this unscripted, just me and you talking uh, about <clears throat> what I wanna talk about in today's Firestarter. And I'm gonna start by, and again, cause I'm gonna tie several things together here, all under the theme of the consequence, the hidden consequence of the worship of women. Because that's where we're at right now as a society. We're worshiping women. It's a wow thing is what I like to call it, W-O-W, wow. The worship of women, there are consequences for it. I wanna start <clears throat> with the league near and dear to my heart, the National Football League. Yesterday I'm sitting at home, I'm watching ESPN, partially by mistake, partially because, you know, I wanted to be updated on the sports world. And I'm talking to, I think, TJ Moe on the phone at the time that I'm watching this. And I go, what is this? And, and they're airing a segment on the NFL scouting combine and the form they're having for women, careers in football. And, and, and so I'm caught off guard when I'm watching it. And then I remember like, oh yeah, They've been doing this every year uh, for the last seven years. The NFL is obsessed with bringing women into football. Th this mindset of bringing women into football, and that's how this whole show is going to connect to when we get to Tennessee Harmony. This mindset of elevating women is the greatest thing that a man can do. It's infected the church. It's infected football. It's infected everything. Most men, and there's tremendous corporate pressure for all men and for all corporations and for all industries, bend over backwards to promote and elevate women. We owe this to them. No, we don't. No, we don't. And that is not me sitting here trying to be hyper negative towards women. I know many of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, Whitlock's just a sexist pig and he, he don't want to compete with women, blah, blah, blah. I don't want things watered down. I don't want things brought to an unhealthy place because we have put women in positions they have not earned, cannot do as effectively as a man, and really aren't the roles for them. Football is one of those places. This whole obsession with developing female coaches, with uh, trying to pretend like there's some woman out there who can play football, who can be the, what was it, Kari Lloyd, the, she was gonna be an NFL kicker, remember they had that gimmick going? They, they uh, CB, the CBS, one year when they hosted the Super Bowl like five years ago, they kept running that commercial and it ran for two or three years about this little black girl that was, got a division one, or not a division one, but a college football scholarship. The whole thing was a joke. She didn't get a, college football scholarship, she got charity. She, got, she was part of a PSYOP. She was part of a PR campaign to convince men 
that there's nothing they can do better in this world than serve women. When you're running around serving women, you're not serving God. See, we're supposed to serve God, not women. That, I didn't say we're supposed to serve man. We're supposed to serve God. But we've replaced that in American culture with serving women. And that's why the National Football League, a male-dominated sport, a sport for men, is obsessed with, oh, God, if we could just get women in high places, if we could make them team presidents, if we could make them coaches, if one day they could be a head coach, if one day they could be the top executive in the NFL, oh, if one day they could be a kicker or a wide receiver, oh, football would be so much better. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. It, because the more we're in this mindset, and this has been going on for more than a decade, and we've watched football get softer and softer and softer, less compelling, less competitive, and more concerned with making sure no quarterback ever gets touched. We're destroying football with our worship of women. And oh my God, we gotta make it so uh, mothers feel comfortable with their sons playing football miss me. If, if, if the standard for what we should and shouldn't do is based on what a mother is comfortable with her child doing, most of the innovations we've had, we wouldn't have skyscrapers. We, we wouldn't have made virtually any progress. Life is filled with an abundance of risk and risk takers are rewarded. But when you get in this worship of women mindset, safety becomes the priority. You downplay risk taking and you soften everything and try to eliminate risk. And without risk, there is no great reward. So I'm watching SportsCenter yesterday and they're talking about their seventh annual uh, women in football form at the combine. I'm watching Roger Goodell talk about this. I'm watching uh, NFL executives and coaches talk about it and everybody's pandering. None of them believe what they're saying. None of them think football, <coughs> football is gonna be improved by injecting women into the game. Nobody believes that, but they're all lying. It's pervasive. In basketball, Charles Barkley, who is known to be the most honest guy in televised sports. I love Charles Barkley, but I'm watching everybody bend to the worship of women mentality that we have here in America. We, we put out these silly movies, The Woman King. We put out uh, Wakanda Forever, where women are saving the world and there's no men. And, all, and if there is a man, all they do is what a woman tells them to do. We, we're building this fantasy world around women are the greatest thing in the world. And Charles Barkley is now even in on it. He told People Magazine, I believe last week, it started circulating. Uh, some of these American companies will get off their A's and get these girls endorsements so they don't have to go overseas to play in the off season. And he, he's basically talking about WNBA players need to be played like, paid like NBA players. This is this worship of women mentality that w, WNBA basketball players 
that are making $160,000, $200,000 a year for playing a game that very few people are interested in watching. $160,000 to $200,000 for playing a game that virtually no one is interested in watching. So these WNBA players are between the ages of basically 22 and 35. And they're making a hundred to 200,000 to maybe $225,000 <coughs> playing basketball. <clears throat> and we somehow think they're being treated poorly. They play about 30, 40 games during the summer. 30 to 40 games, and they get a check for $200,000, close to. They get a six-figure salary for playing 30 games of basketball during the summer with hardly anyone watching. This is between the ages of 22 and 35. This takes up about three months worth of their time. For three months, someone 22 to 35 will get paid close to $200,000 for playing a game. Are you kidding me? And I'm supposed to feel sorry for them? I'm supposed to feel like they're being taken advantage of and mistreated? I used to be 22. When I got out of college, I made $5 an hour working for the Bloomington Herald Times. I can't do the math anymore. I don't, can't remember, but probably my first year out of college, I think I made around $14,000 at age 22 or 23. I made, with a college diploma, working, and was happy about it. Didn't feel like I was oppressed. I got what I deserved. I spent so much time in college playing football and drinking beer that when I got out, I wasn't qualified for a full-time job that probably would have paid me at that time $26,000 a year if I had been qualified for full-time work. But I wasn't qualified, so I had to get in where I fit in and work my way up. This is the path for most young people. But we're crying about basketball players? In a sport, in a league that loses 15 to $20 million a year and is totally subsidized by men in the men's league? The worship of women is driving us nuts and making us do things that make no logical sense. We're operating off emotion. We're operating off of, oh, we want everybody to feel good, and we want everybody to feel good about us. And so let me go out here, Charles Barkley, who's got the reputation as one of the most outspoken people in sports. Let me go out here and tell everybody what they want to hear. Companies need to ante up for women's basketball players because they're so important. This is a clown society when we are focused or is on 
hey, can we get women's basketball players paid more money or any athlete more money? They're not doing something important, but what they want to happen is they want to build these women basketball players up into idols no different than LeBron James and Deshaun Watson and I like Patrick Mahomes, but Patrick Mahomes and all these other useful idiot athletes who don't do anything important for society. They want them built up as idols because those guys have spent so much time developing their physical attributes that they really on the short bus. And I'm just sorry, I used to be an athlete. I used to be a dumb jock. And even the smart jocks, many of them were dumb in comparison. And they lived a pampered, privileged life. I said, I was a mid-major college football player and was treated like royalty at my high school. Let alone how Jeff George was treated. Let alone how LeBron James and all these other guys that are superstar athletes get treated. And now, but those are the perfect people the puppet masters want to develop into influencers because they're too stupid to think beyond what's best for them. And so all these female athletes from Megan Rapinoe to Diana Taurasi to Brittany Griner, they want to be, they want to develop them into useful idiots to influence the culture. And they want to do it in the WNBA because Anybody that knows anything about the WNBA knows that the WNBA is an alphabet mafia league. Talk to any straight woman who had the misfortune of playing in the WNBA. Listen to what they say about that league. Who runs it, what kind of bullying goes on, what the sexual pressure is in the WNBA. And so they got Charles Barkley out there. He doesn't know it. He's been a pampered athlete his whole life. Again, I like Charles. But my God, this guy was a freak of nature in, in seventh and eighth grade. He's been a pampered athlete his whole life. Treated like royalty his whole life. He has no idea that this promotion of the WNBA isn't about fairness or equality. It's about the alphabet mafia and building up these women and this league as an idol so that our kids will follow the lead of Brittany Griner, who went on stage at the Image Awards with her hair cut looking like Colin Kaepernick Jr. or Trevor Noah. They want more of that in front of our kids as idols, as people we worship, as people that, oh, look at all the, they make millions of dollars for playing 30 games of basketball that nobody watches. That's who you should listen to, baby girl. That's your role model, Brittany Griner. Her pronouns are they, them, and scissor. Finally, and this is not finally, but the other angle I want to go at here is just what the injection of 
women onto all these media platforms and what it does to the conversation. If you sit a woman in this room with me, and particularly if you sit attractive women in this room with me, my conversation's going to change because I'm going to start catering my comments to the women in this room. I'm not going to want to offend them. I'm not going to want to do anything to jeopardize the possibility that one of them might like me. And that's why I don't have women sitting in this room with me because I want to have a truthful conversation. I don't want any bait that's going to lead me to say, well, she may not like that. And, you know, one night she may be thinking about giving you some. So you better say X, Y and Z, Jason. It happens. And so I'm, I'm going to show you, and I've talked about this before, but on all these media platforms, they've set these Barbie dolls on these desks and platforms to control men to make sure that they think with their smaller head and let that dictate everything that comes out of their mouth. And that's why much of the conversation in the media is stupid and illogical and emotional and removed from truth because everybody's performing. It's a very feminized conversation. And so I want to show you this conversation that transpired on CNN in the last week. And, and, and they're talking about a serious issue or that they're pretending to. The lack of black doctors. And, and I want you to follow how illogical this conversation is and how we got here, because we didn't used to talk this way. When we talked about doctors, we used to talk about the competency of doctors. That's all that mattered. Were they competent? It's a life or death situation. You're playing with my health. Can we have a conversation about the competency of doctors? Instead, we're talking about race and representation and diversity and inclusion and equity. It's a joke. What happens though, when you drop these Barbie dolls into these conversations, the men started acting, start acting like Ken and they want to be a Barbie doll too. Play the clip. Right now, fewer than 6% of doctors in the U.S. identify as black or African-American. That's despite the fact that the community makes up 12% of the country's total population, and that's raising concerns about the impact on public health. CNN Health reporter Jacqueline Howard joins us now. So, Jacqueline, what is being done to rectify this? That's the Can thing, Deanna. The more needs stop, to be done stop. to make Can we stop the tape? Stop. I want to just add in something here. I mean, just, just, no, keep that, keep the picture of the guy up. He, he is surrounded. I want you to, he's, he's in a hostage situation right now. He is surrounded by two attractive women. He can't think. And I know one of them's on Skype, but one of them's sitting next to him, and he is surrounded. And, and all the truth and all the manliness is going to get squeezed out of him. It already has. You've already heard him, just how he framed the conversation up. Because trust me, that man in his real life, when he goes into the doctor's office, he don't care what color the doctor is. He wants to know, can the doctor do the job? Is he qualified? 
But because this man is surrounded by two attractive women, he turns into a complete idiot. And it's fine. Get you an attractive woman at home and be that idiot at home and tell that woman at home anything you have to tell her so that you can get into that sweet spot that you'd love to be in between. But on TV, talking to the world, giving people advice, you need to keep that in private. But instead, you're leading an idiotic conversation so that you'll come across as sensitive and any woman out there watching are these two women that you're surrounded by will like you. Now, watch this where this Barbie doll takes the conversation. Go ahead. Our physician workforce here in the U.S. reflects the diversity seen among patients. Now, what has been done so far? We've seen more efforts to get STEM programs in grade schools. At the medical school level, we've seen more mentorship programs, particularly for students of color. But when you look at the physician workforce right now, active doctors at this moment, we're still seeing 5.7 percent are black or African-American. And that's compared with, as Victor said, 12 percent of the U.S. population. When you look at Native Americans, Less than 1% of doctors are Native American, and that's compared with up to 2% of patients. When you look at Hispanic or Latino physicians, 6.9% are doctors, compared with up to 18% of the U.S. population. So those differences are what's concerning here. And experts say we need to do more to make sure our doctor workforce reflects the diversity seen among patients. Yeah, we need to do more because the research shows, and we've discussed this before, the mm -hmm. benefits of a more diverse workforce. Uh, often, um, sometimes uh, doctors will dismiss the concerns yeah. or symptoms mm -hmm. of a certain demographic. Uh, explain uh, what the sh studies show. Exactly, Victor. And research shows that when we have a more diverse physician workforce, there's more understanding and more trust between the patient and the doctor. If the doctor has an understanding of the patient's cultural experiences, cultural background, lived experiences, especially when it comes to racism or discrimination or other aspects of their life, that can help with that physician-patient relationship. And we also see that patients are more likely to follow a physician's medical advice if they do have a feeling of being heard and understood. So all this plays a role in really improving public health, Victor and Biana. I hope Victor got her phone number. I hope. I hope there's some benefit, some payoff to that. Any of us that have ever been to the doctor, unless you're an idiot, unless you're part of some racist cult, you don't care about the color of that doctor. Not part of your thought process. Now, maybe in some cases, you know, like I, I will say this, as it relates to a dermatologist, I like a black dermatologist because I think there's some skin issues uh, relative to black men that a black doctor may have more experience. He may see more patients like that. But at the end of the day, I've gone to all kinds of dermatologists. I've gone to all kinds of different doctors. And race really isn't an issue. And it isn't for any of us. And this whole thing about feeling heard and understood and lived experiences. Trust me, Victor knows how stupid that is. But he can't say it because he wants her phone number. 
He wants to make sure that if he's ever in the same city with her, she will have lunch or dinner with him or hopefully breakfast. That's what happens. And that's why men have to quit worshiping women. It's taking us straight to hell. It's making us stupid. There's no one there trying to elevate the conversation. It's all foreplay. So now I want to show you what the tragic consequences are when you play this diversity game and, and that you worship women and you think that, oh my God, we gotta have diversity or, 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 or things aren't right. Let's throw qualifications out the window and, and I'm, I'm gonna show you how this manifests itself and what some of the consequences are. You've heard the story about Megan Hall, the young 26-year-old police officer, I believe in Laverne, Tennessee, not far here from Nashville. She was getting uh, banged by most of the guys on the workforce or half dozen guys on her police force in Laverne. Uh, they all got fired. A uh, little young white girl, her boss, her the chief, the police chief, and her coworkers, all taking turns tag teaming her. You've heard the story; it made national news. She became a meme and a joke. Well, now she's suing, and she's suing and saying that uh, she was groomed by her boss and her coworkers and her peers. I want to play you this uh, news clip. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Here's a news station. I believe in Tennessee that covered this story. A woman at the center of the Laverne sex scandal is now suing the city. Former officer Megan Hall is also suing chief of police and two sergeants she was allegedly involved with. And the lawsuit alleges that Hall has suffered from lost wages, reputational harm, mental suffering, loss of enjoyment of life, and emotional distress because of all of this. Let's go to WSMV's Courtney Allen for more here. Lauren, the lawsuit says Hall already suffered from mental health issues when the then 24-year-old started at Laverne Police in 2021, and they only got worse. The lawsuit says Sergeants Lewis Powell, Ty McGowan, and Chief of Police Chief of Police Chip Davis used their power to sexually exploit the new female officer. The details of the lawsuit are hard to stomach, detailing the alleged sexual abuse that Hall says she experienced. The lawsuit says the sergeants covered for Hall's mistakes at work to get sex acts in exchange. It goes on to say Chief Davis promoted a culture within the department where sexual coercion by supervisors against junior officers was openly accepted. Listen to what Chief De Davis said during a prior interview. I feel bad because it's happened on my watch. And then However, the lawsuit says the police chief you just heard there threatened to fire Hall if she did not go along with his demands for sexually inappropriate activities. Lauren. Okay, so these are some pretty big accusations. We know you're going to continue to follow it. So let's go over what they spelled out there. Mental health issues when she joined the force. So she came to the police force with mental health issues. How, how, well, how does she get hired? She gets hired in 2020 because, oh, that's right, 
diversity, equity, inclusion trumps everything. It trumps qualifications. We must have more females on the police force. And so you lower standards and you don't care about people's mental health issues. What all, if we just put women on the police force, things are going to get so much better. And so they hire a mentally unstable person who's young, 24 years old, on the police force, who can't do her job. And so what did they say? Uh, they covered for her mistakes for sexual favors. And you're right, you can, you can blame the men. I've already told you what happens to men when women enter the equation. Our thinking goes out the window, out the door. Our IQ gets lower. And you can sit there and say, oh, that's men's fault. Men need to be better. And we do. And we're going to address that. that. That's what this show is about. That's what April 15th is about. We're going to address that. But we got to be smarter as a society and just understand there's limitations. Men, people tend to be predators. And so if your police force is demanding, if your lawmakers are demanding, put women on the force. And you're sitting there saying, there's not very many women qualified to be on the police force. There's not very many women who can do this job actually. Do it at a high level, at the same level as men. But we're forced to hire them. And so you hire this woman and you know she can't do her job. And so, and she knows she can't do her job. She's desperate to succeed in her job to help pay for it. And they talk about it. You read articles. She, her and her husband were trying to buy a house. And so she just wants to survive on the job. And so guess what they offered her? Oh, I can help you survive. What's in it for me? I'm out here risking my life as a police officer. I'm not here to give out charity. You can't really back me up if we get in a dangerous situation. I'm covering for you. So what's in it for me? And these men started asking for things that would compensate for her incompetency and for doing her work and for them being less safe trying to cover for someone who clearly can't do her job. There are consequences for the worship of women. These are real, and we're doing this throughout all of American society. Don't play your role. Go out and do jobs that are meant for men. And men, you make all kinds of adjustments. And so this very thing that's going on on this police force, trust me, Trust me, it's going on in the NFL. There's a reason why. You go to any NFL, you go to ESPN, you go to any of these places where women are getting all these jobs in sports. There's a reason why the overwhelming majority of them look more like Aaron Andrews than, why can't I think, than Lizzo. 
There you go. That's just pulling off the top of my head. More of them look closer to Aaron Andrews than Lizzo. Because a lot of these men that are doing the hiring and that system, they're hoping, <laughs> hope she can't do her job and has to call on me to assist her. Because during that assisting process, I'm going to ask, what's in it for me? And she's likely wanting to survive, wanting that fame, wanting to be a, someone in the NFL, an executive, a coach, what, a, a broadcaster, a sideline reporter, whatever. She's like, well, <laughs> I'll play that game because she just wants to survive. This is what's going on all over American society. Let's put women in roles that are best served by men. And let's call it progress. And anybody that's not on board with it, they're a bad human being. They're scum. They're sexist pigs. They're the worst of society. They're afraid of women. They're homophobic. They're sexist. They're, they're, any, they're racist. They're Uncle Toms. They're anything you can think of. But what if they're just people who believe in the truth spelled out in the Bible about male leadership and certain roles for different genders? What if they just have biblical values? What if they just have common sense? What if they just don't want to put themselves in a position where they make the same stupid mistakes as the Laverne police officers. What if th th there are people like that? They're not all bad guys. They're just people that's like, nah, you know what? I believe this Bible more than I believe you. This Bible's infallible. You're very fallible. And this whole worship of women thing that we've got going on in America is destroying America. It's why there's so much chaos, division, animus. It's why we're being unseated as a world power. So that's, we'll continue this discussion because again, in my view, these same issues are going on in the church, and that's why Saddleback and the SBC are at each other's throats, and the church is falling, and because and, the church is playing this same game, oh, we gotta have female pastors. And they wanna debate scripture and say, well, you know, Timothy ain't all right, and the Bible never says X, Y, and Z. We'll discuss that with Anthony and Virgil and Dave Shannon. First, I'm going to bring on uh, Shamika Michelle, and uh, we'll talk with about what's going on at her daughter's school in Durham, North Carolina. Atheist, the secular world, the culture uses our imperfection, our sins to take. Shut up! You, you're, you can't stand on truth. <laughs> 
And if all it was was imperfection, it eliminated us from standing on truth, this would be a very quiet place. I'm trying to be as loud as I can and as transparent as I can to try to inspire other men. We know you're imperfect. You know you're imperfect. God's grace and mercy, mercy gives you the right to stand on his truth and to speak that loudly into the culture. We, we have to do that. You can look around and say, these guys have taken over everything. They own the CDC, the NIH, they got the president. Is transgender surgery for children? Colleges today are nothing but leftist indoctrination centers working fully against the Bible. What's the alternative? So you're gonna stop fighting today and you're gonna let the government raise your kids? And you're gonna turn around and let them chop off your 12-year-old daughter's breasts and let them sterilize your son and tell him that he's a girl? And you're gonna let them make the Bible hate speech? You're the last line of defense here because nobody else is gonna do it and God's gonna walk with you. This is literally worth dying for. Absolutely. I'm telling you, so it's like everybody, that's a nice little metaphor. This is it. If there's a hill to die on, this is it. The Overton window has been moved right in front of our children's bedrooms. And there are all types of people that are trying to climb up in the ladder. And every good father should be on his post so that when they peek their head up over the, the window sill, you kick the ladder back down, let them know, you, you move on to the other house because we're not playing that around here. Sometimes just standing up, just saying no, we're not going to do that. Not my marriage, not my kids, not my family, not my community, not my church, not my city. Just declaring that, that's victory enough. In prepping his disciples, he tells Peter, he's like, listen, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. We're gonna face some ups and downs in life and we're not gonna always get it together. But if we stay on the path, if we stay chasing after, running after Jesus, running after his way, he's even praying for us. Now, I, I like it when you pray for me, Jason and TJ. I appreciate that, but to have Jesus pray for me, that makes me feel pretty good. When you make it through this sifting process, go back and strengthen your brothers. So we all have a responsibility as men. Once he's delivered me through this, I have a responsibility to go back and bring some other folk out. You do a roll call to just let people know you're not alone, be confident in your positions, and we're going to inspire you. We're going to eat, fellowship, listen to some music. It's going to be the first of many roll calls that we do. So we're looking for soldiers. We're going to put out our best uh, recruiting pitches for soldiers. All right, welcome back. Time to roll out to North Carolina, bring in Shamika Michelle. Shamika, uh, you wrote a very interesting column this morning that we published on The Blaze. I suggest everyone go read it. Uh, your daughter goes to a high school in Durham, North Carolina that is celebrating Crown Week. Uh, Crown <laughs> the Crown Act is some national legislation they tried to get through that you know would stop discrimination against black women for their hairstyles at work. Uh, it got filibustered in the Senate, but states are adopting it. It looks like North Carolina may be next. It's 
being debated on the North Carolina Senate floor this week. Anyway, uh, walk us through, you, you get an email and you find out they're celebrating hair all week at Durham schools and, and Durham schools aren't the best academic <laughs> schools in the country. Right. First, let me say, Jason, that my daughter actually attends one of the schools, one of only three schools that has an A on their report card for Durham Public Schools on the North Carolina report card. So let me say that first. But yes, I get an email letting me know that each day this week, they're actually celebrating different natural hairstyles because of the discrimination that women have to face when they go into work or school. They're also doing two events. The first one was last night and the, the next one will be, I think, tomorrow night that they're, you know, focusing on just hair. And if we look at the statistics, there are 24 out of 55 schools that have D ratings on their report cards. When it comes to math, 59% of these children are below grade level, 58% in reading, and that's just overall. When it comes to black students in math, 70% below grade level, and we wanna focus on hair. So when I got this email, I was just irritated because I've said before, Jason, that no one hates natural black hair more than black women. So for them to be making an issue as if these kids have to go into school and be ridiculed because of their hair or staff members, it's silly and it's just not true. Maybe 20 years ago, this was the way it was, but you have men walking around dressed like women. The chances that they are ridiculing black women for their natural hair the way it grows from their scalp, it's just slim to none. So for them to be making a big deal, I think it's a little guilt. It's the, the all-female led, well, there's one male on the board, but you know, the female led school board, just really trying to make a big issue out of nothing. As you said, it's really unbelievable uh, <laughs> that they're making a big deal out of this. I mean, it's totally unbelievable. Exactly, because listen, Jason, if you walk through the schools, what you're going to see is a lot of uh, lace front wigs. You're gonna see a lot of weaves. You don't see black women embracing their natural hair the way we could or should, yet they're the ones always running around claiming that white women wanna be them. You don't even wanna be you. So let's just stop the lies and stop pretending that this is an issue and it needs to be on some state level that people are protected. I, I don't even see women wearing their natural hair to be making this a big issue. All I see is a bunch of lace front wigs and gorilla glued uh, baby hair on their forehead. That's what I see every day and the little bat lashes that they think are cute. So this is a, a, a way to just steer the attention in the wrong direction. You talked in your uh, monologue about there not being enough black doctors. 
where there aren't enough black doctors because our kids are not coming out of high school prepared to go into college to study the subjects that could make them black doctors. When you're not focusing on math and reading, your kids are gonna go into college studying African-American studies or early childhood development. They're gonna come out of college making maybe $40,000 and then have to pay back all of these student loans. We're not preparing them to go in and excel as engineers and doctors we're not doing that in the lower grades. So let's stop the lies as if people are just keeping black people from being doctors or lawyers or engineers. We're not preparing them on the school level for these types of jobs. That's what really irritated me about the CNN segment because they're, they're not so stupid that they don't know that, that, that you can't have all these crumbling, failing school systems all over the country where kids aren't proficient in reading, writing, and arithmetic, and, and have really no interest in history other than to be able to complain and say, well, y'all didn't tell me that this bad thing happened to black people. Y'all didn't tell me this bad thing happened. You know, and, and so these kids aren't leaving elementary school, junior high, or high school on track to be doctors. So why should we be shocked that there's they're only five and point nine percent of the percentage, but they, they don't want to talk about that because it's it feels like all that we can do in schools, and this is a school that I think you said sixty six percent of the principals in this school system are female, seventy uh, percent of of them I think are black, and it's like all they're doing is trying to make sure kids feel good in school, not trying to make kids learn. They, you got to feel good before you can learn. I'm not sure if that's the case. Uh, you know, that certainly wasn't the case in athletics. They, they try to wear us out and then teach us so that we could actually think when we were tired and, and struggling, they give us some adversity and that made us better competitors and more interested in learning. But, but the whole school seems to be about the mental health or the alleged mental health of black kids rather than actually educating black kids. Right, and this goes to show that when you have so many women in charge, it's going to be death and destruction because we continue to say things like, oh, we need people that look like us in order for things to be better. You know, if there's a position of power, put someone that looks like you in that position. Well, obviously, with a predominantly black school board, we have a black superintendent, we have we're, we're not in a better position. It's not helping our kids. And with so many women running the school system, they do, they do things like hair week because no one cares. When I went to when I went to school, I had a jerry curl. When my mother switched it to a relaxer and all my hair fell out, I still had to go to school. I was still expected to excel and make good grades. No one cared what our hair looked like when we went to school, but now we're pushing that to the forefront, having a full spirit week First day, big hair, don't care. Second day, um, braids. Today is a crown of color. What? 
Come on, you don't need to be sitting here trying to color your crown to go to school. That is not even important. Can you read the products that you're even putting in your hair? That's what we need to be focused on. Can you, you know, do you know math enough to know the ratio between bleach and, and whatever else? No, because we're not teaching these kids the right things. So this is what happens when you have all of these women in place and all of these people that you put in place because your skin color matches. We're, we're, this diversity thing is exactly what you say it is. Die. Diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity is die. Because that's what's happening to our kids. Finally, Shamika, I, I believe one of these days, isn't it dedicated to kings and their crown and how they're going to teach masculinity through hairstyle? I, I, I read this in your, and I'm like, they're going to, through hairstyle, they're going to teach masculinity, huh? Uh, wow, I, 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 I can't wait to see that and see the results of that. Yeah, what they actually said verbatim is redefining masculinity. So masculinity as we know it is, is not good enough. You know, they need to redefine it. And to me, what that means is you want to birth a bunch of little bitches because the fact that you even want little boys to come to school, worried about their hair, coloring their hair, growing their hair long is the ponytail uh, in the right place today. We don't want you women to redefine masculinity. What you've done over the last 50 or 60 years pushing uh, feminism has already started to redefine masculinity, which is why we're in the place we are today. We don't need you to do anything else. We need y'all to really clock out and go in a kitchen somewhere and fix a sandwich because what you're doing in corporations and schools and it is not helping and, and you're, you're messing things up. Thank you, Shamika. Great job. Uh, good luck with Hair Week uh, <laughs> or the rest of Hair Week. Uh, this is a hair-brained idea that they have in North Carolina. Uh, you can email me and us, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. I need you guys emailing me about roll call. I need to be getting emails from you all about you're coming to roll call, you're bringing your son, you're bringing your best friend, you're, you're, you're bringing your brother, you're, you're bringing your cousin. You guys need to be emailing me about that and you need to be signing up at fearlessarmyrollcall.com. On Monday, ticket prices are escalating. So you only have a few days left to get these tickets for $100 for roll call. I, was, I told you guys, I think at the top of the show, I was on the phone with Tamar, She's coming in town from L.A. to sing Freedom and some gospel songs. Bryson Gray's going to rap for us. Uh, I've got the barbecue catering all hooked up. Uh, Friday night, we got the barbecue here at the studio that you guys can sign up for and a live show on Friday, April 14th. Saturday, we got the breakfast. You need to do it this week, today, because on Monday, we're going to jump the ticket prices Go to Fearless Army, rollcall.com. All right, to Dave Shannon and some Tennessee Harmony. Next.
right, welcome back. Time for some Tennessee Harmony. Anthony Walker's here with me in studio. Uh, Dave Shannon is uh, with us over Skype. Virgil Walker's going to join us after we talk to Dave Shannon. But as we do every Wednesday, uh, Pastor Anthony, if you could bless our conversation, and then we'll get rolling. Father God, we're thankful for this day and all the days you've blessed us with. Father, help us uh, today to adhere to your word, uh, to display your grace and mercy to those that we come in contact with, and that this show uh, and this segment will be a blessing to those who hear it. We're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, uh, Dave, you kind of put me on this topic. I saw a tweet of yours about uh, what's going on with the SBC and the feud they got with Saddleback Church out in Orange County, California. And then I read an LA Times story uh, titled, uh, let's see here, titled A Very Dangerous Course, What Saddleback Church Ouster Means for Southern Baptists. And I want to read this excerpt from the story. The Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845, conceived as an organization of individual churches with a set of shared beliefs that pull some of their resources, but which ultimately autonomous, but which are ultimately autonomous. Now some Southern Baptists fear an ultra-conservative ideological wing of the organization is imposing its own beliefs and values on other churches. So, Dave, you're predicting doom for the SBC, and, and it, it comes down to Saddleback is probably one of the most popular mega churches in all of America, certainly uh, probably the most popular in the Southern Baptist Convention, and they've been disfellowshipped, I believe is the word that is being used, because they keep promoting female pastors, and this is something I think Rick Warren wanted to do. He's retired, and his replacement has continued this. Dave, I, I, you know, use your tweet as a jumping-off point to help us understand what, what you think is going on here in, from your point of view. Yeah, you know, Jason, it's not just this issue with Saddleback that made me tweet what I tweeted, which was basically, you know, I'm, I'm watching, we are right now watching the dismemberment um, of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I'm really saying that it's happening because of a, a lot of other things, but one of them is a Saddleback issue. One large helping of guilt, I believe is what I said, and then six uh, tablespoons of cowardness. Now, uh, just so you know, I got to put a, a few bona fides on the table. I'm a Presbyterian. I baptize babies and I believe in paedal communion. There is no reason for me to be involved whatsoever with the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't even have any true fellowship <laughs> uh, between Presbyterians and uh, Southern Baptists beside the we both believe in Jesus. But I decided I did a documentary back in 2019 with a group called Founders Ministry. Tom Askell uh, was the head of that ministry. And so I got into the Southern Baptist conversation because when I went to the Southern Baptist Convention, then I started seeing that the Southern Baptist Convention is a microcosm of American politics and culture. And so goes the Southern Baptist Convention, then so will go the rest of American culture. And they have been dealing with some problems and issues far be longer before we ever started dealing with them. And if that bastion of hope falls, that is the last Christian institution in America 
that is conservative and has never fallen to the liberal ideologies. Every major uh, institution, Christian institution that existed had fallen through liberalism over the years. And because of the way the Southern Baptists are designed to operate, um, individual churches that come together in a federal collective, it has been able to topple the liberalism that's come in back in the early uh, back in the early 90s and the late 80s, the Southern Baptists were dealing with this exact thing with women pastors and with uh, liberal theology. It was actually in some ways worse than what it is now. They had uh, doctrinal issues, trinitarian issues. They had women leading in their seminaries. They had it was all over the place. Women pastors. It, this is not a new fight for them. They were able to, in 13 years, turn the Southern Baptist Convention from going liberal like every other denomination and turn it back to a more consistent biblical institution. And they did that by narrowing the idea of the battle to women ministers and preachers. And what is the role of a woman? We're back, it, and I say we because I love these guys. This is why I'm fighting with this battle for them. They're back at the same place again because of the fact that during that time, whatever the problems of the Southern Baptist pastors and leaders were, and I think they had many, these are guys who still had some cojones. They were not guys who were able to be manipulated by guilt. Well, you move down about 30 years, and all of a sudden you have a new group of Baptist ministers who have forgotten the fight that they were in then and are now able to be manipulated by a cultural guilt between what you call it. It's critical theory, racism, um, Sexual abuse is the leading one. Um, how do we treat women? And these guys, not knowing the old stories, are opening up the door to the battle that they won to lose this battle because they don't have any balls, to be honest with you. And so I, that's why I said, hey, the biggest thing that is in this cocktail, this recipe that's destroying the Southern Baptists, is guilt manipulation. They are guilty in some way or another, and other outside ideologies and, instant, and, and worldviews have come in to use that guilt to get a foothold. And so the, the women having roles and being treated rightly in the sexual abuse stuff and slavery and is just open the Southern Baptists up to say, we don't care anymore about our doctrine. We don't care anymore about what the standards are biblically. What is it that we can do to have this guilt taken off of us? And when we were making this doc, Jason— we had, I believe, four or five of the—so the Southern Baptist Convention, so you know, has six seminaries. These six seminaries train all the people in the Southern Baptist Convention. We had four to five of those seminaries a part of this documentary. And when we started to see the play that was happening, we just released the trailer to kind of point to how the sexual abuse, manipulation, and guilt was going to get underneath— the Southern Baptist Convention to manipulate them to do things that they shouldn't do. We just pointed to it and all of those presidents dropped out. All those presidents dropped out. And the, and even Al Mohler, who was a part of the documentary, wanted to drop out. But Tom Askell just said, nope, we're not doing it. You're going to be in it. It's going to happen. And so that has been watching this go on. I'm watching the Southern Baptists lose the battles that they actually had won back in the day. Mm, that's some... Interesting. Anthony, are you following this? And is Dave has stated where he's at as a believer, he's not part of the SBC, mm -hmm. is, is, is your church? or are you? No, we're, we're not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Churches of Christ are not a part of that. But 
one of the things as a part of my study and a part of my ministry, we have to keep our ear to the ground. Uh, as Dave said, the Southern Baptist Convention is a uh, kind of a thermometer, so to speak. They kind of keep a pulse on how society views religion and how the church kind of responds to it. So how, you know, whenever anything goes down, people look at that and they say, oh, well, look at what happened here and their response. And it comes down through uh, what I saw with Saddleback. You know, you could start to see the tide turning. Uh, Rick used Saddleback, as you pointed out, Saddleback is, you know, one of the most popular uh, churches and one of the most popular, obviously associated with the Southern Baptist. But, you know, he was able to do some things that probably the Southern Baptist would not have done prior to Saddleback just becoming this monolith. Um, so because of that, when he starts making, I think it was about a year or so ago, when he starts doing the hiring the women pastors, first it was kind of a, oh no, we just, you know, we're using the term pastor colloquially, you know, just kind of a generic term for ministry leaders. But then as he fades out into retirement, we see, no, they're really pushing for women pastors. And, you know, as Dave is pointing out, to kind of appease the societal view and the common person view to, hey, you know, women can do this, too. So I've watched it, paid attention to it. Uh, but no, we're not a part of it, though. Dave, your take on Rick Warren is he the primary culprit here in your view? Um, I think because of where he stands at and because of his influence inside of the Southern Baptist Convention, I think he's uh, a representative of that. But I think that um, really the culprit is so the only reason that this is even an issue right now is not because Rick Warren has been doing this with women and trying to put them in positions of power for a long time. This is not new in the Southern Baptist Convention. They've known about it. What makes this a little different is that messengers, which are the people that are sent from churches to vote at the Southern Baptist Convention, were guy, kind of getting fed up and said, hey, we want an, a committee put together to look and see if Rick Warren's church, Saddleback, is in line with the Baptist faith and message. So when before in the Southern Baptist Convention, when they felt this drift coming, they knew they needed to gather around biblical doctrine that united them. The Baptist faith and message in 2000 was that document. And it makes it clear in that document that the office of a pastor is for man. So. This wouldn't have something this wouldn't have been something that the, the SBC would have actively investigated unless somebody on the floor, a messenger from a church said, hey, is he being consistent with this? So there are other churches in the SBC that are doing this as well. And so who is the main culprit? Well, you can point the, the, the finger at Rick Warren, but I think it's the lacks of understanding what the doctrines and commitments are inside the SBC that allow for anyone to be in fellowship with the SBC. So the doctrine has slipped and because no one seems to want to remember that, that, hey, this is what makes us Southern Baptists. Remember that? Um it shouldn't have required a messenger to have to do this work. It should be required the credentials committee or somebody else at the executive committee to say, well, hold on. We have all this tithe money coming in and supporting uh, these missions. This is what it takes for you to be a part of us to do that. And this guy is out of fellowship. These churches are out of fellowship. There's been many churches that um, 
I think people have looked at it and said, hey, why, why are they in fellowship with us? So I don't think it's just Rick Warren. I just think he's the big enough name and face that's pushing it. Um, and so it, it's hard to say. I think there well, are oh, other. Th- I'm, go ahead. I'm going to go in secular terms. It, it, it's like Rick Warren is, is West Coast rap. And so <laughs> everybody was making rap music and Public Enemy and the East Coast was dominant and uh, you had X-Clan, I'm going to date you, to, you know, some of these references too old for y'all, but you had X-Clan, you had all the uh, KRS-One, you had all this message music. And then NWA came out and started making more money and getting more popularity than everybody else, and everybody threw away message music to make gangster rap music. And, and so it's, it, to me, I'm listening to you and I'm just like, Rick Warren became so popular and was making so much money that other ministers started saying, let me, let me mix in a little of this Rick Warren to what I'm doing because I want to be as popular as him. No, I think that I, I completely agree with that. <laughs> and that's no different than what I've seen in the Presbyterian world, too, with Tim Keller. Tim Keller goes into New York. He builds a church there. Presbyterians aren't a popular group. <laughs> And so for you to go into the middle of New York and build a church in New York and to become somewhat popular, all of a sudden, all the other Presbyterians who are in the Bible Belt go like, what, you, what, what is he doing? What is he doing? Instead of being faithful. So I think the same thing has happened here with Rick Warren. I do agree with you with that, that Rick Warren has garnished the garnered the popularity and everybody's like, well, how can we do Because I remember when Hawaiian shirts for pastors became cool. And that's because everybody was trying to be like Rick Warren. So, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I just wonder if the agenda and narrative is somewhere deeper inside the SBC and he is just the face of it. Well, I, I think, and Anthony, you can speak to this run in a church. I think what happens with churches is just like they're like, we got to reach people. We're not reaching enough people. Mm -hmm. And if this is what I got to do to get them in the door, at least they're in the door. And then I can fix them up once I get them in the door. And and is that that's probably a flawed strategy. It is. It is. It, it, It sounds good and it makes waves initially. But in the long run, you lose those same people as well. The same the thing that you did to get them kind of like in dating, the thing you did to get them is the thing you're going to have to keep doing to maintain them. So if we you know, use a lot of gimmicks and tricks and things to get you in the door, if your message isn't solid, if your doctrine isn't solid, if it is not based on a foundation in Scripture, as the people grow, even if they just are growing in their own search of the word, they're going to grow to say, wait, all this fluff and stuff that we're doing, I, I got to go find something real. And so they'll eventually leave. What's happening with the SBC is because they tolerate it, tolerate it, let it slide. Now you're at a point to where somebody's got to say, OK, are we going to do the word or are mm. we going to do what is appeasing the numbers and getting the people in? That may be a part of the the split. So I'll step into my Jason Willock confessional booth <laughs> and, 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 and say, wow, that really resonates with me because I sit there and think I'm out in L.A. in the middle of COVID when it first pops off. And I've shared with you all many times on this uh, show in the middle. Everybody's locked up. Buddy of mine from Texas, like, hey, man, watch Mike Todd this Easter. And I was. 
mm. blown away. It was one of the, it's still one of the greatest sermons I ever saw. Yeah. And I was hardcore Mike Todd and he, he's got all the bells and whistles that I, I'm tell, I didn't like just initially. I was like, what's all this extra? Why is he dressing this way? But I just compromised on like, Well, the message is so good and blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And here I am now three years later and I don't mess with Mike Todd. I, I just, I look at it and I laugh yeah. and, and just, this isn't sound. And again, it's just what you're saying. One, you, you're on this search for truth mm -hmm. and eventually, <laughs> well, this don't jive with the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so I've lost my passion and enthusiasm and he, his associate pastor started wearing lipstick and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mike Todd with all his little videos on Instagram and all that other stuff. I'm like, wow. Anthony and Virgil were right. <laughs> and Delano. And Delano, Delano. yeah, Delano. yeah. I was like, wow. Right. So, Dave, anything else you, you, you want to add that we may be missing on this story? Yeah, you know, I think that people need to pay attention to what's happening at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the idea that, you know, we are going to, we have way too much at stake. The part of the reason that the Southern Baptist Convention is directly being attacked is in 2016, everybody saw Trump win and they saw the last bastion of Americanism, Christianity come out in droves. And a lot of them were from the Southern Baptist Convention, who they didn't think was a, a focus group anymore, come out and support Trump. And so it's a very clear attack against the founding pillar in America, it, uh, uh, the last bastion of hope is America is is the Southern Baptist Convention, and so they have decided to bring out every weapon that you can think of against the Southern Baptist Convention. I just want to say this: the Southern Baptist Convention um, is getting hijacked by sexual abuse, um, uh, you know, ambulance chasers. And the, and the reason you know this is the case is because over 20 years, the Southern Baptist Convention has 700 abuse cases, over 47,000 churches. Over 20 years, government schools have like 15,000 every year. And people are coming after and writing articles and banging at the door of the Southern Baptist Convention telling them they have to change when government schools should be saying, man, look, the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't want any sexual abuse cases. No church does. But if you look at government schools and then you look at the church and you say, man, completely perfect. How do we start becoming more like the Southern Baptist Convention so that we get a lot less of these kind of cases in our environment? But that's not what's happening. What they're trying to do is set up some new forms of institution inside the Southern Baptist Convention so that the Southern Baptist Convention ultimately starts looking like the world. And they are so compromised because of their guilt and not trusting in the gospel that they're being manipulated to do things and being set up by like companies like Guideposts that's influencing the Southern Baptist Convention on uh, their ideas and what churches uh, they need to look at and how they need to think about these issues. Guideposts supports LGBTQIA uh, institutions and ideas. Why is the Southern Baptist Convention paying ties to a group like that? You guys have a standard. It's been working. Continue the standard and fight on. But because they're so compromised by guilt, they're letting these type of things underneath the, the camel's nose, underneath the tent, and they're being destroyed because of it. Dave, you've opened up a can. The, the, that sounds like, and I, I've been afraid to say this out loud because I don't have all the information, but it's just a thought 
that has crossed my mind. The attacks on the Catholic Church for sexual impropriety of priests, I feel like, and I'm sorry, I, I, has it been exaggerated? I'm not saying it, it doesn't exist, but the pervasiveness of it, I think, has perhaps been exaggerated. And, and by exaggerating and making movies about it and making it feel like every Catholic church is rife with this kind of impropriety, the, it, it totally damaged the, the strength, power, and influence of the Catholic church. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about the Catholic church to be able to speak to that as far as the stats. I will say this, though. When you have priests who are not married, it, not a whole lot of good comes from that situation. <laughs> okay, there, there's a requirements for an elder. He needs to have a wife who loves him and raises his kids, and he needs to be able to raise his kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There is a reason that the Bible gives that that status and that idea. And so I, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised by that. I bet somebody who is Catholic would love to say, yes, that's absolutely right. I will tell you this about the SBC. Out of those 700 cases, half of them were adjudicated. They went to court. They dealt with the sin. They dealt with the issues. And I believe the other half of that 700 never rose up to a legal situation. So it's no doubt that we're getting played in this one. I'm, I'm asking out of ignorance. Is John MacArthur, is he getting caught up in this? Is he part of the SBC? He is not part of the SBC. He's independent, I believe. But he's getting attacked along these same... He didn't handle allegations of sexual impropriety, not against him, but mm -hmm. right. gave women bad advice who were in abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. And so this is like, I mean, he's a pretty strong pillar of, of yes. faith and he's under attack. This is the play, Jason. It's guilt manipulation. It's to find some sort of way to get underneath so that you can lay down your arms. We have a standard. Churches have a standard by which they go about dealing with these situations. What guideposts and people like Rachel Denhollander and the companies that they're putting together, what they want to do is to take those judgments away from the church, the standards away from the church, and they get to make their own standards by which this, uh, by which you judge the situation. And the church then gets recommended from them how you need to judge a situation. What is the biblical law? Now, we're not, we're not talking about whether or not you need to call the police on somebody who, who does something like this. We know that. But they want to take elders and leaders and men and have all these decisions made some other some other source outside of the church itself. Well, that's to make you impotent. It's to take away your authority. So you can't make these decisions. Thank you, Dave. I listened to all of this. Oh, man, I'm glad we had this conversation. We may have to circle back. We may have to just stay on because Dave has unpacked and helped me understand. The, oh, wow. And, and I sit here, number one thought I think about is like, why I left L.A.? Mm. And, and literally I knew like, hey man, if you don't get up out of this environment, your lust is going to cost you everything. It will, yeah. And, and it, it just, man, this is a lot to think about. And I'm, but this is an important conversation. We'll do some more with Virgil Walker next. I just want, I want All right, welcome back. Uh, let's 
bring in Virgil. I believe Virgil's in Atlanta today. Uh, Virgil, want to bring you into this conversation we're having about Saddleback and the disfellowship and Discord uh, within the SBC. I'm sure you're following this very closely. Uh, I sent Mm -hmm. you and Anthony some tweets that caught my attention that were mentioned in the LA Mm -hmm. Times story. Uh, A minister, Dwight McKissick, I'm burdened by the attempt to disfellowship Saddleback for this very reason. It's not about scripture or adherence to the uh, BFM 2K that does not, uh, with Baptist faith message that does not yeah. address the women's ordination or women serving as associate pastors. It's driven by power, mm-hmm. male supremacy, and it stinks to the nostrils of God. Nowhere in scripture is the word pastor assigned as being associated exclusively to males. It's a gift given to women too an associate pastor of women, youth, children, worship, education, or administration does not violate the Baptist faith message 2K or the Bible, testosterone versus doctrine. Uh, Dwight McKissick has said a mouthful. Uh, Do you agree, Virgil? Well, one, thanks for having me on this topic. Yeah, I've followed this for quite some time. I actually wrote a piece about it when uh, init- the initial issues related to Saddleback uh, hit the fan during the Southern Baptist Conve- uh, co- Convention conference. Uh, I, I, uh, w- your question was, do, do I agree? No, I absolutely disagree. I know Dwight uh, McKissick. I've, I've followed him. He's followed me. We know one another. We've had conversations together, and we we disagree on this on this particular subject. Uh, he is egalitarian in his in his view of women and their roles in the church. Uh, I, I am not the, the, the BFNM uh, 2000 that you mentioned. That's the Baptist faith and message. Uh, it is the standard by which all Southern Baptist churches have have you know uh, wrapped themselves around. And there's, it's their statement of faith, if you will, uh, for for Southern Baptist uh, you know uh, uh, Southern Baptist churches. Here's what I, here's what I would say about that as well, Jason. While that is the standard, and 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 as a convention, we can point to that and say these are the operating principles uh, that we've agreed uh, to gather around uh, as a as a convention. There are a number of, of Southern Baptist churches who don't adhere to uh, to on this issue of, of women, uh, you know, maintaining leadership within the church uh, within specific roles, but 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 not as it pertains to uh, the the office uh, and function of a pastor. And so uh, D- Dwight McKissick is outside of the bounds of that from a BFNM standpoint. But along with McKissick, there are churches like Rick Warren's who've decided they want to operate differently. And, and my my response to them in the same way that it was to Saddleback is if, if that's where you land uh, on this particular issue, that's fine. Just be ready to remove yourself from the Southern Baptist Convention and, and do something different. Right. Uh, I, you know, this this is not this is not a, a hill to die on. I believe that I believe the issues related to. Um, the role of women in the church. I believe that's an important issue. I believe it's a biblical issue. In fact, I, I believe that God is the one who has decided uh, who his church is, what, how, it will, how it will function, how it will operate. Uh, and we have no right to determine that we know better than God or better than scripture uh, on these issues. And so as it relates to McKissick and others who, who decide to take a different tact uh, as it relates to this, I, I, I think the word is sufficient on these issues and they're just flat wrong. Anthony, I, this entire show, I've been talking about the 
elevation of women and putting them in leadership positions, put them in non-traditional roles, that seems to be the mentality of America. And this conversation is helping me understand that, that it started with this movement in the church and, and what we're seeing in the rest of society is a reflection of what of the battle and struggle that's going on in the church. You're a church of Christ. Are y'all having this battle within your group? I wouldn't even say that it, it, it started in the church. I would say that it starts in how society is responding to women, but the church has had to grapple with, do we stand with what we believe scripture says or do we kind of make it comfortable for women? And there may be some questions. Were there some times possibly in history where, you know, men or the church just relegated women, hey, just get back in the back. We don't, you, you know, you're not seen or heard, et cetera. Maybe so, but we still have to stick to scripture. I wanna point you to a, a passage, Jason, that, that really kind of helps me to frame this. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 35. God says, or Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and he shall and it shall be repaid to him. What Paul is saying is that we can't conceptualize the mind of God. I can't wrap my feeble human brain around why God does, how God does. He's a sovereign God. And so I don't want to match my logic with God's wisdom and knowledge. I don't want to respond to situations from a human perspective to say, well, that makes sense to me or that seems logical because my logic and, and my you know understanding it pales in comparison to God's knowledge and wisdom. So as it relates to women being pastors, Paul, uh, you know, he tells Timothy, he tells Titus that elders, pastors are husbands of one wife. Okay. Now, are, am I saying that women may not have the ability or capability to preach? They probably do. But do they have the authority by God to do so? If not, then I have to stand with God. And that's not me, it, that's not male supremacy, I think, as the guy tweeted. Uh, that's not uh, male domination. That's not women inferiority. That's God's order. And, and I have to agree with and align myself with God's order. And I'll say this as well. How God does things is going to be different from how the world does things. So I, it, it may not make sense to the world. And I'm OK with that. I'm OK with the world calling me any list of names. You're this, you're that, you're bigoted, you're traditionally thinking, you're all of that. I'm fine with that because I want God to say, well done. The world may say whatever it wants to say, but I need for God to say that. So even on this issue and within our church, we love women. Uh, women have a role that God has designed for them. Men have a role that God has designed for him. And those roles are complementary to one another. 
They are valuable in the eyesight of God. And let's do it the way God wants it done, not in mm -hmm. what the world thinks makes sense or seems logical to the world. So to answer your question, you know, has the church dealt with this? I know of several churches that are struggling with how do we do it? Because there's a generation coming up that is trying to redefine what family is, what leadership is, what authority is, what God's word even says, to look at God's word on its face and say, ah, oh, that doesn't mean that. Or it could be, or appealing to one's feelings. Uh, this brother tweets, you know, women can have the gift too. Well, again, they may have the ability, but do they have the authority? I don't want to submit to my preference. I want to submit to his purpose, not what makes me feel good or makes me popular, but what glorifies him and lifts his way up because his way has never failed. I, I stand corrected because I agree with you. This is the world influencing the church, but it makes me want to ask, and I'll start with you, Virgil, is the church doing nearly enough to influence the world? Mm. Because if the world can have this kind of influence on the church, shouldn't the church's natural reaction to be, well, man, we gotta have some influence on the world if it can impact us in this way? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a great question. I think the reason why this is so important and, and why it's, uh, it, it, it's a focus on the SBC is because the, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest largest church convention in the country. Uh, they, they claim weekly attendance is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 13 million people who claim to be Southern Baptist attend church on a Sunday morning. So this is the big, big you know, section of our country. And, it, and, and what you're getting a temperature of uh, are the viewpoints and the, and the values and the things that that, that that body, that organization, those people hold dear. Uh, I love the last segment that, that you had uh, with Chuck Knox, which, by the way, when he did that documentary on the SBC, uh, he and I were connected. I was I was actually in the room as he made recordings and different things like that about what was happening. And, uh, and I would encourage people to go to go take a look at this in a doc. It's called By What Standard. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's a great resource to help you understand some of the issues, not just issues around egalitarianism, uh, but also issues around uh, around critical race theory as well. It'll show you the influence, the infrastructure, how things are shaping up, what's happening. It'll, it'll be a great resource for you. That said, uh, I, you know, to, to, to the point that, or the question that, that you're asking about the influence of the church uh, into the world, uh, the, the problem has been, especially for Southern Baptists and the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, it, it goes back to the conversation you, 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 you just had, which is the desire by many in the church is to grow numbers. It's how can we, how can we kind of be friendly to the world in order to get more numbers into uh, in, into the pews? And so, rather than trusting what this, what Scripture has to say uh, about a regulative principle of worship, about about worshiping God in the way that God has said He should be worshipped according to Scripture, what people have appealed to is they've appealed to relativism. They've appealed to what, how, how can I relate to culture? Oh, this, the, 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 the women pastors. OK, that will help. OK, we'll do that. Uh, how can I relate to culture? Oh, uh, we, we, we've got issues around around CRT. OK, we'll embrace that and bring that in. Uh, you know, so they're, they're constantly on the lookout and it's, it's, it's a pragmatic approach. Now, these are extreme situations. You know what I just mentioned, CRT and egalitarianism, but in small ways, 
all along the way. Uh, there have been capitulations, uh, bowing the knee, walking things back in an effort to appeal to the world. They, they, there's so many people within the SBC circle, especially in leadership, who, who would rather be relevant then they are desiring to have God's revelation of his word permeate every facet of worship. And so that's where that's where the rubber meets the road. You've got a lot of folks. I, I love what Dave said in the previous segment, which when he talked about about the guilt that has uh, that has been a part of, of the SBC. And this has been the case for for years, really, since its founding. Uh, the SBC was founded uh, on the basis of the fact that they wanted to separate from Northern Baptists uh, to, to have a hold on slavery. Right. This this was in you know the, the late late 1800s, 1849, 1850, somewhere in there. 18, I think it's 1849, 1847, somewhere in there. But but that was the whole basis by which the Southern Baptist Convention got started. Now since then they've they've done a lot of things like the rest of society to get things right, to go back to scripture, to apologize for for historic wrongs. But it's 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 people like Dwight McKissick uh, and others who want to uh, who want to who want to uh, reproblematize history. Reproblematize historical narrative. Oh, y'all started out as a as an organization that was founded upon trying to hold on to slavery, and 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 the, in their mind that didn't happen in the late 1800s. That's actually happening today, and so they, they need to do these things. They need to make sure women have their ha, have have the pulpit. They need to make sure that that, that blacks uh, have the narrative of CRT to use uh, as a as a sledgehammer to get what they want from large organizations like this. And unfortunately, many in leadership have bowed the knee to pressure like that, starting with SBC uh, 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 seminaries uh, and, and the way that and the way that 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 future pastors are actually educated. I mean, it's, it's a it's a whole it's a whole host of problems that are important to discuss, because this is the last look, look, the church is the last bastion bastion of hope that's holding back the evil that we're experiencing in the world. And if the church has, as, as you know, abdicated its responsibility, if, if they've walked away from Scripture, believing they know better than God how to do things, there's absolutely no hope, Jason. There's absolutely no hope. And so it's it's imperative that that guys like 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 Knox, like myself, like Pastor Anthony, and others uh, stand for truth and have platforms like this where we can talk about these very complicated issues and uh, in, in an effort to try to bring clarity to what's happening. I keep having revelations as you guys talk. You've helped me understand something Dave was sharing. He, you know, you just went back in on the guilt thing. And then Dave made a comment that I wasn't prepared for, but it's like now I am having listened to you. He made a comment about that the SBC was a critical or their membership, not the SBC, but their membership, their believers were a critical voting block for Donald Trump. Absolutely. And that seems to be the guilt sledgehammer that's being you guys and the way you do things are responsible for Donald Trump being president. And if you just had more women in here in leadership, that wouldn't have happened. And if you just fold on LGBT issues and things like that, that wouldn't have happened. And, and they're throwing the SBC on a Trump guilt trip, which is, again, this is like a new understanding for me that Dave was insinuating. That's a lot to think about. And, and that's, that, that now I understand the fervent passion 
to bring down the organization. And, and I think it connects, even though John MacArthur isn't related to SBC, I, I think the evangelical conservative group is under attack because they are responsible for Donald Trump right. in people's minds. I, yeah, and, I, I, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you've laid out there. And, and I think I, I would say this. Uh, the, the, the guilt trips were, were taking place long before Donald Trump. Absolutely. were taking place long before Donald Trump. I think I think prior to Trump there, there the idea was that uh, strides had been made. Uh, but I will say, uh, in, in, in you know, with the election of Donald Trump, uh, f- there were many people within Southern Baptist circles who who woke up as if as if once he got elected, uh, they they walked back into 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 the chains of slavery. Uh, I would love to tell you that there was this that, that there was this fight within SBC leadership to say, you know, hey, we're 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 here. Here's how we voted. We're going to stand on that and keep it moving. Unfortunately, because of the pressures of society. And the desire by many in the SBC to be relevant to the rest of culture, there was tremendous capitulation on that stand. And so they were they were ready and willing to walk back things that they said they believed in previously in an effort to remain relevant to the rest of society and culture. Hey, we're not the racist you think we are. Hey, we're not racist like like Trump. Hey, we're not we're not homophobic. We're not xenophobic. We're not, you know, all. all and so the, the, the battle around that. Uh, uh, began to ensue. At the end of the day, for me, Trump's irrelevant to what does scripture say about these things? You know, and I think for most who hold to a biblical worldview, who understand biblical sufficiency, that the Bible is clear and speaks to society today, uh, that it's not this old system that we need to throw away because we have better ideas than God, which is actually what's being said more times than not. When, when we when we remove what God has said in his word, particularly on this issue about pastors uh, and, and making it making it uh, what, what we desire. Hey, women should do this. Women should do that. When we do that, uh, we've actually we've actually lost the whole battle. And, and, and that's that's really what's 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 at stake here. I think I think it's imperative that we that we stand on biblical truth. Uh, I think it's imperative that we address the issues of the day and we point to uh, when and where people are not doing that. Um, you know, I, I think I think that's that's at the end of the day, that's what we have to do. My final thought on this is because I'm thinking about all the outgrowths of this and and because it's blown my mind. I've seen Christian people run away from the term Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll never forget the day Dave was on this show and he just kind of giggled and laughed. He goes, I'm not a Christian nationalist. I, I'm a Christian intergalacticalist or whatever. <laughs> right. He said, right. I want right. Christianity across the galaxy. Right. And so what are these people you know, talking about? But that is what has happened. We've made Christians ashamed of being Christians and wanting a biblical worldview to guide our government. We've been convinced that's a bad thing. And, and it's like, man, we're playing a game of chess and, and Christians are getting destroyed. It's, It's like, we're playing checkers in a game of chess. They got us running away from, I'm a sham Christian nationalist. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Ow. <laughs> if, as Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. 
the word Christians will stand up. If you really follow Christ, you will stand up wherever against whatever and you'll remain on God's truth. Times change, people change, ideologies change, culture changes, but God's word remains the same. So I stand with it and I'll let culture do. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes culture swings back towards God a little bit and then it goes back its other ways. Sometimes all these different things, but I'm going to stand with God's word. But when you stand on his word and you stand with God, people, even within your circles or even within organizations will turn against that. They'll think, oh, man, this is this because you said Christ or you said Jesus or you say you stand or you're against this. As Virgil said, I'm, I'm not against it because of who's against it. I'm against it because of what God's word says. So when you stand with God, you got to be ready to face the fight. Guys, I need you all. And Dave, I'm sure you're still watching. I don't want to leave this topic alone. We're out of time for today. I would love for you all, if there's things that I did not, we did not get to, additional things, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, I want to continue this conversation because I think it's that important. We don't need to relegate it and relegate the wrong way. We don't need to just touch it on Wednesday. If there's more we can get to tomorrow, we'll cut our time and get to it because I think this conversation is very important and what's going on with the SBC is very important. Thank you guys so much for your time today. Uh, we'll play some harmony and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Tell us.